leaving It's remails when we need to talk bad about my boss Take a break from work today is no total loss Valentine's Day month, I don't know, for better, uh, February 1st edition of the South Dakota Game Fishing Parks Podcast and Blast. I am your host, your habitat advisor for this episode, Chris Hall. I got uh, my co-pilot Nick Harrington with me, uh, straight out of Nebraska, and sitting across my office in, uh, or not my office, but an office in socially distanced manner is uh, GFP employee Mark Norton, and on the phone we've got... Watertown's finest, Matt Morlock. Matt, how are you doing today, buddy? Doing great. Great to be on. Um, this is going to be a fun discussion. This is something near and dear to me. So, yeah. uh, cool. definitely socially distancing all the way over <laughs> in Brookings today. I called you Watertown's finest, but uh, old habits die hard. Yeah. Hey, you know I, that's my roots. You gotta, right. you gotta represent the roots. Yeah. So uh, today, for a lot of pheasant hunters in South Dakota, is a sad day. It's February first. Uh, pheasant hunt, hunting season ended yesterday. Norton, I know you were out. I think I saw some pictures of you stomping around this weekend. I was last weekend. Last I didn't week. make it out this weekend, though. But it was nice to hunt through January, for sure. Yeah, and, and the weather was very cooperative as well. So. It was. So, but we're, uh, since since we're talking uh, the end of pheasant season, we're going to talk habitat. And specifically a program that... that um, has been around for a little while, but uh, kind of back in the news, and that's CREP. Mark, what does, I, I think most of our hunters know what CRP means, but what does CREP or CREP mean? Sure, well it stands for Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program, so it's like CRP on steroids, you could say. Uh, it, so the, the landowners are enrolling their land in CRP just like they would uh, if they're gonna put in CRP, but they get an additional payment from Game Fish and Parks to focus those acres in the James River watershed and open them up to public hunting and fishing access. Okay. Um, Matt, give me your title and who you work for and what you do too, and then I'm going to kind of bounce you into this. Yeah. So I'm the state coordinator here in South Dakota for Pheasants Forever. Um, what I do is I push paper a lot across my desk, <laughs> but um, more importantly is I, I manage our farm bill biologist team. Um, and other biologists around the state, um, and then stay up to speed and help work with policy when it comes to federal and state programs and things like that. Um, basically, live and breathe habitat and private lands work because um, you know ultimately what we do on private lands, since our state's eighty percent owned by by private landowners, um, affects what we do on the public land when we're chasing roosters in the fall. Right. So, how are you guys involved? How's Pheasants Forever involved in this? prep program yeah so like i said we have we have a team of farm bill biologists um we have 18 individuals right now around the state um, that are based out of usda service centers and their sole job is to be a one-stop shop for landowners looking to enroll in federal and state programs mm -hmm. um, what they do is they sit down with those landowners and they decide you know they, they get an idea of what that landowner is looking to do on what their goals and objectives are for their, for their farm. Um, and then they sit down and find programs to help them. And then they work on the contracts and help them get through that process. Um, you know, we talk about CRP and CREP, and there's 
ASAP, which is an easement. There's all these alphabets out there. Um, that gets very confusing for landowners. Um, and sometimes we, we hear a lot of landlords that try to do it on their own and they get confused. Sure. Or they get the wrong program where it doesn't work for them. They don't want to do it anymore. So our goal is to work with those producers, make it an easy process for them so that they're willing to do more. They talk positively of it and it works for them. And it, it helps them on their operations. Um, and CREP is one that we work a lot on in the James River Valley um, that's proved to be very popular with landowners. Um, it takes a lot of some liability off their shoulders. It gives them extra money um, and things like that. So our farm bill biologist staff are in those offices day in, day out, helping those landowners get enrolled in the program. Cool. So, so Matt, this is Nick here. One of my main questions here is just when we're driving by, what does a crepland really look like? I mean, is it is it like some of our walking areas? We'll have active cattle ranches. We'll have crop fields. If if I'm on the road and I look over and I see a crep land, what should I expect to see out the window? Yep, so it's going to look like those CRP fields out there. Um, it's going to have a lot of good vegetation. Um, you know, there's times when it's managed, um, so you will see some haying and some cattle on them occasionally. Um, that's just part of the, the contracts with the program. They have to do that. But it's to the benefit of the producer they're doing it, too, because it makes that habitat better in the long run. But um, it's going to be a lot of tall grass and wetlands, um, just prime optimal pheasant hunting habitat. Cool. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Mark, Matt brought up the fact that, like, CREP is, is popular with landowners. Let's talk about where this is, why it came about, the history, and why it's popular. Sure. So, like I said earlier, it's it's like CRP on steroids. And so long ago, back in the... 2006 seven range i'd say the department knew that we were going to lose we're going to start losing crp in south dakota it's, it's no surprise to to anybody who's a hunter out there you've seen it happen in the landscape and one way we could as game fishing parks we could do something to slow that loss of crp on the landscape was to enter into a a crep to create a crep with usda and this is this allows us to put enroll up to a hundred thousand acres into the of CRP into CREP that's also open to public hunting and fishing access. So it hits a couple of our main priorities. It gives us it gives us some guaranteed habitat, or we don't lose at least 100,000 acres of CRP, and it's all open to public hunting and fishing access. Uh, obviously, it's targeted in the James River watershed uh, because that's been a traditional stronghold for pheasant hunters uh, since pheasant hunting began. Uh, started up and down uh, multiple communities up and down that James River Valley lake claim to being the original right. Right. you know place where pheasants were released right. this is where pheasants got to South right. Dakota right. Um, and and every year uh, hunters locally and from around the country they they flock to the James River watershed to hunt uh, pheasants and this this some bigger communities that may resonate with people out there are Aberdeen, Redfield, Huron, Mitchell, Yankton, up and down that James River watershed, always been great places to go pheasant hunting. And that's and uh, another part of CREP is, besides just obviously putting habitat on the ground and creating hunting access, CRP obviously has more benefits to the world than just habitat and wildlife. Right. And the James River uh, has been a priority for the state to improve water quality for a long time as well. So we got to kind of double dip there, get some improved water quality benefits, more habitat, more hunting and fishing access, and stack them all on top of each other in that part of the state. 
Cool. So, Mark, I mean, we talk about how the James River is kind of that historical. Has there ever been talk of expanding CREP, or are we really just focusing it in on that 100,000 acres in that prime area? Yeah, well, that's a common question from hunters, landowners, uh, all across the state. Um, there's been many, many people say, well, let's do a CREP in the big, the big Sioux watershed, or maybe even further west in the White River watershed. And so, yeah, it's definitely been talked about, definitely being considered. But uh, at this point in time, we just want to get this one to the 100,000 acres. And uh, if funding and, and partnerships come about in the future, uh, we'd certainly be open to, to trying to do a, another CREP in a different watershed in the state. Sure. Matt or Mark, let's talk about, so it's 2006. I can't believe it was that long ago. You know, I look at Norton and, and uh, Matt. I've known you guys for that long. It seems like it was yesterday that we were working on this first CREP thing. Um, but let's let's talk about um, you know that eighty thousand acres. Um, you know we got to eighty thousand acres as as a as a collective. Um, let's talk about that where we're going and talk about just the funding of something like CREP. You do one of you, Matt. You can start it off. Oh, I was just going to say you can start it off. <laughs> <laughs> You've been more in the nuts and bolts trenches of that. Right. Um, so why don't you start it off, and I'll fill in. That sounds good. So yeah, we started enrolling. So like I said, in 2006 we started planning and, and trying to get this crep thing going. And finally, in 2009, late in 2009, we were able to reach agreement with USDA to make crep possible. And then, so 2010 was the first hunting season that anybody realized or noticed that there's this new place on the landscape that I can go hunt now and it, it's pretty awesome uh, and so through those first three three and a half years uh, we were able to enroll a little over 80,000 acres into the crap and then that gets to your question about funding Chris so we all obviously there was a lot of planning going into this we had budgeted three million dollars a year uh, that we could put towards crap and rolling land and crap and it just so happened that 2010 to 2014 time frame was, was a pretty uh, profitable time frame to be farming. And land values increased significantly over that, that three to four year time period. And so did CRP rental rates. And so our $3 million that we had budgeted for us could only afford us to enroll about 80,000 acres. And that brings about, so how are we going to get to 100,000 acres? And in the 2020 legislative session, uh, the habitat stamp was passed, and one of the purposes of that was to create or to use it to create more public hunting opportunity on private land. And CREP is just a picture perfect program to use that money to fit those needs. So, with the revenue coming in from the habitat stamp, it started selling last July, we're now able to enroll those additional acres to get us to 100,000 acres. Matt? Yeah. No, I was just going to jump in there. You know, Mark talked about how, you know, this was a long process getting to get the program launched. And, you know, being in South Dakota, we like to, you know, play in a gray area and, and be a little different. Um, and that's where, with this CREP program, part of the reason why it took so long was we were the first state to come on and say, um, we want to add public access onto our CREP program. Um, and that's the qualifier for being a CREP program. Um, other states kind of used CREP for a long time 
it was always an easement add-on to the CRP sign-up, and it became an easement program. And we were the first state to come on there and say, no, we're not going to do easements with this. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to tie hunting access onto this, the CRP contracts to make the crap different. Um, so it was it was new, and it was something innovative that USDA hadn't seen before. Um, and I think at sometimes we had to drag them along a little bit and say that this was a good thing and we can do this and all that stuff. Um, so it was really a groundbreaking idea that came out of the state. Um, there's some other states, I think, that have, have since joined on with this. I know a lot of my counterparts in PF look over that fence um, and just wish they could do it in their states. Um, public access is always an issue in those states. Sure. Uh, and they just they can't get get it off the ground and going. Um, they love what we're doing. Um, so that's what, it's really cool that we did something different here um, and realized that hunting and hunting access was so important to the state. And everybody stepped up and made it happen in this way. So you know, fun, funding is always a problem, but right. that is everything. So we look, we look back in this history, and we can see this conversation started 2006, 2009, 2010. Here we are 10, 11 years later. I mean, why is this coming back up now? With How long of these contracts are these landowners entering into, and what does that look like for the long-term solution to habitat? Yep, so I can start there, and Mark, you can correct me when I'm wrong because it happens. <laughs> um, so they sign up, these, these landowners commit to ten, a minimum of 10 years. Um, and then they run out, they can go as long as 15 years in, that, in this program. Um, and it, it's, you know, that's always a debate that's going on on private lands work with CR, around CRP and stuff. Is, is 10 years long enough? Um, it, easements are nice because you, you do it once and you're done and that's always there. Um, but, you know, my, my belief on it is that we need these shorter term contracts because it's really acceptable to landowners. You know, things are changing all the time in operations, and this gives them a way to be involved. Um, but then also in, in 10 years, if it doesn't fit them anymore, they can get out of the program. We can bring somebody else into it. Um, so it's kind of nice in that way. The other thing about it is you know, if somebody does leave the program, you know, we're going to put new acres into it with another landowner. And those first five years of a CRP contract are when they're optimal. Um, so it keeps that early successional habitat going, too. So some turnover is good that way, too. Um, you know, you're always going to have high quality hunting on these these sites because it's it's not you know old rank grown grass and things like that. I think Mark is in full agreement with you. I asked him <laughs> did he screw anything up, and he shook his head no. So <laughs> let's mark this day on a calendar. Then. <laughs> normally, normally Mark has to correct me because I go down a tangent and it isn't right. <laughs> So, so we're allotted in South Dakota in this in James River watershed. We're allotted a hundred thousand acres. Uh, in two thousand ten uh, into eleven, I think Mark, or maybe even twelve, we got to eighty thousand acres. So now we're trying to get to a hundred thousand acres. But by my math, if we started in two thousand ten and some of these contracts are ten-year contracts, we're also out there, um, you know, Morlocks, Minions, and and GFP folks are out there trying to re-sign up these some of these expiring contracts what are you hearing on that and and you know matt you just talked about you know maybe some turnover on you know getting some new people in into the into the fold and maybe operations have changed what are we seeing on that side that like the, the re-sign up part of it you know talking to my team out there most people that are expiring want back in um it's it's working really well for them 
Um, so we're not seeing a lot of turnover, and we're not hearing a lot of turnover. Um, I would say, you know, more than 90% are, are re-upping their contracts. Um, so that's a positive. Um, and then also there's a lot of new interest going on for that, that remaining 20, 25,000 acres that are sitting out there for new acres. There's a lot of interest in it. Um, I have a feeling they're not going to hang out for a long time. Yeah, you're right. Interest is really high in re-enrolling and, and we were fortunate to be able to re-enroll those as well. Uh, you're right. We're 10 years in. Uh, so we just got done with our 10th year on, on many of the first contracts that went into the CREP program. And uh, I'm going to correct Matt here just on one thing. He said he said 90%, but actually we had 80% re-enrollment, which was still really good uh, of the stuff that was expiring last fall in 2020. And uh, we do anticipate, uh, you know, similar re-enrollments in, in the years to come. Uh, we've got a, a couple big years of of contracts because you said we got to 80,000 pretty fast in a couple right. of years there so we're going to have a lot of acres expiring here in the next couple of years and it'll be a, a pretty big workload to re-enroll uh, hopefully 80 percent or more of all of those and then like matt was talking about the shuffle there if some of them don't re-enroll that frees up opportunity for brand new uh people to get into the program brand new you know create that early successional habitat and stuff like that as well so there's there's certainly lots of opportunities uh for, to improve and expand CREP here in the next few years. So so moving forward here, and we already we hit on the habitat stamp a little bit, and this is going to be something that we see moving forward every year. Is that going to be the primary funding mechanism for CREP now, or where is, where is this money going to come from as we talk, you know, the next 10 years, the next 15 years down the road? Yeah, good question, Nick. So the, the habitat stamp, will be part of the funding piece uh, for at least Game Fish and Parks component of funding CREP. And, and maybe I should back it up to a higher level. Uh, so our requirement for Game Fish and Parks to have a partnership with USDA to have a CREP is that we have to cover at least 20% of the entire program's cost. So Game Fish and Parks is, is paying a small piece of the total cost right. to have 100,000 acres of CREP on the landscape. USDA is paying that other 80%. Uh, and so what does Game Fish and Parks use then to fill our 20, meet our 20% requirement? Uh, so that the habitat stamp will help us go from 75 or 80,000 acres to 100,000 acres. That's, that's the piece we didn't have before, that habitat stamp. Uh, we will continue to fund the, you know, that up to that three million that we had budgeted before with with hunting license dollar revenue and and federal aid and wildlife restoration funds which i know chris you've talked about that and where's the money go and from mm -hmm. and all those different series right. that you've been working right. on as well yeah. uh and so but to really from a hunter's perspective it's your license dollars that are funding right. game fish and parks portion of the crep to make crep possible right yeah and dan Jumping in, being the uh, the non-GFMP person on this call, um, it's 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 exciting to see the department leveraging our dollars so well. I mean, eighty twenty that is bargain basement to get access to hunt. Um, it's just it's really cool to see, and that's the power of partnering with the federal government is they can come in with those dollars at a higher level and amplify what we're spending. I mean, it's just it's great to see that. Yeah, and it, it makes it it makes a a big difference. You think about a hundred thousand acres, and we we talk about 
you know, all the time, what's the number mark, you know, the, the number of public land acres that we have, you know, it's millions or whatever. I can't even remember what it is right now. But if you're talking about 100,000 acres and and if you've been driving around, if you're listening to this and you're driving around, you know, grab one of our atlases, the Mark Norton Bible, the, the hunting and, <laughs> the hunting access map and find a crap. I like, I'm going to use that. Find a crap, find a crap on that thing and drive by it. Uh, you know, I think your jaw is probably going to drop on most of them because there it's good quality stuff. And if you start to talk about a hundred thousand acres, there's a lot of that stuff where you look at it and it's oh, it's a forty acre tract. It's going to take you most of the day to walk it because it's good stuff and it's you know some of that stuff up in the northeast from where I'm, where I'm from. I mean, it's it's thick, it's cattails, it's good grasses, it's good stuff. So um, I think that's that's something that we certainly. Uh, you know, our, our dedicated upland hunters and even deer hunters would probably echo that. Now, I haven't hunted some of that stuff, you know, down in the southeast. What does that look like? You know, I know up in that northeast Brown County and around that country, that I mean, there's grasses, but there's a lot of wetlands and, and, and you know, cattail sloughs and good, heavy, good, really good cover. What is, as, as you're going south, what does that look like? So yeah, I've had a chance to hunt some of that stuff down south of Mitchell. Um, Hutchinson County early on was just a hotbed for this. Um, and those sites, they're different. I mean, I've hunted them up in Brown County like you and down there. Um, there's a lot more grasses, it seems like, in the south. It, they're not as many of those big cattail basins down there. It's a bunch of smaller ones spread out. Um, it It's... It's really good. Um, it's just a little bit different. You're not gonna you're gonna spend more time in the grasses and less time in the cattails. Yep. But they're they're still full of birds. Right. <laughs> What's the minimum size of something you could sign up? Forty acres is 40? the minimum size for crap. Yep. So what, what, what's the average size? I mean, what is our average crep land out there? That's a good question, Nick. So the average size is about 100 acres. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and Chris was kind of alluding this too, what does that look like on the landscape? I mean, so if you guys, if anybody's been hunting South Dakota the last 10 years, you've, you've seen what 80,000 acres of crep looks like. So what does another 20,000 or 25,000 look like? Well, you, you can do the simple math there of an average of 100, and that's another 200 to 250 places to go hunting. That really and it really helps disperse, you know. And we're I've hunted in a lot of states around us, and in a lot of states, especially as you go east, you'll be hunting a quarter, and there'll be two, three other groups hunting on that quarter. And out here, if there's another guy in the quarter, you're kind of like, get out of my way. Right. <laughs> it really, you know, that's two hundred like marks. That's two hundred other game production areas to spread hunters out. Um, it really helps. Uh, I mean, it's that's just the beauty of hunting in the state, and that's what I hear from a lot of non-residents too. Is I can go hunt a piece, and I'm alone on it. Where in other states, I'm having to fight with other groups. Um, we're really spoiled in that aspect, and it's it's really nice that we can use this program to even spread people out even farther. Um, it really just keeps that quality of the hunt up. It's something that we take for granted out here. Well, and I'm just I'm just doing the math here. I mean, you look at my habitat stamp and my license fees, and I know that. I'm going to have, even just paying those, I'm going to have another 200, 250 places to hunt and that's going to be prime habitat. That's that's better than any private land deal I know I'm going to get. I mean, that's that's for sure. So I think that's really just something that stands out to me the most is what's my return on investment for my license for my habitat stamp? 
Well, right here in this conversation alone, it's 200, 250 prime, prime bird holding areas. Yeah, and I, I want to add to that. It's not just pheasant hunting right. opportunity mm-hmm. either. Yep. There's, I mean, this is some phenomenal deer habitat. And like you guys were talking about all the cattails, there's a lot of wetlands on these crep sites right. too, mm-hmm. and there can be some pretty darn good waterfowl hunting on them as well. Yeah, I, I know I got to got the chance to hit a few of those with our upland biologist, Travis Runia, and he was like, yeah, I'll take you to these. And I came back and I started looking, and we're, there's ducks flying all over, and he goes, this is one of my duck spots. You forget about where this one is. <laughs> I'm like, thanks a lot, I think, Travis. I think I've done more duck hunting on craps than I have pheasant hunting, to be honest with you. Um, they're just, they're, especially up in that northeast, that Brown County area and stuff, it's, there's a lot of primo duck hunting that people overlook right so here's a, here's another question for you guys so we've talked about the the variety of opportunities these lands have now as opposed to our general walking area which is just hunting only correct mark these creps have fishing i mean is that an untapped resource for a lot of people or i mean how many how many of these crep lands have pretty decent fishing on them that people take advantage of yeah, the, the fishing thing is probably a little less tangible because mm-hmm. uh, water levels are going up and down right. every year. The James River, obviously last year, was in flood stage up up around Hecla for like 18 months straight or something yeah. like that. Uh, so you got, you know, you've got river opportunity or hunt, fishing opportunity that for those that are closer to the river and some of the main tributaries going into the James watershed. And then and then some of them around some, uh, some big... Uh, bodies of water some are meandered water some are non-meandered water um, that do hold fish and provide fishing opportunity cool cool i I bet somebody would give you their uh pheasant hunting or duck hunting spots before they would give you a crap fishing (laughs) (laughs) just my guess let's ask travis (laughs) 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 so what have we missed boys um you know, I'm, I'm just thinking it, it's it's for you know for somebody who's from Roberts County and and drive home you know six seven eight ten times a year and from Pierre and you see these signs and, and you know just one experience that I had we were up in Brown County uh, in Spink County kind of right on the on the uh, border there and we tackled one of these big creps and it was I mean there was grass and there were some trees but it was a cattail slough complex. And uh, we tackled one of them, and, and, you know, there was five of us, and we shot five or six birds. And uh, then I spent the rest of the day driving around looking for one small enough for me to want to tackle again. Um, you know, so it's, um, it, it was almost ridiculous about, you know, you talk about opportunity and access. And I was driving around going, oh, yeah, I just saw eight birds flying there. Nope, too big. I don't want to walk that one again. <laughs> you know, I'm tired. Um so I mean that the opportunity is 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 amazing. It really is, and and the access part of it obviously is key. But the opportunities that if you're there and you're targeting some of that stuff and you're planning it out, man, if you're if you're somebody who hasn't really done some homework and you're going into a new area, I certainly would would look for those crep crep areas first, and then kind of start circling out from there. Yep. But what yeah, did we miss? That's what. Can bank you can just bank on you're going to show up and it's going to be good right um it's that's i always when i'm looking at a map i key in on those crap sites because you know when you show up they're going to be really good um you're going to have good grasses there it's not going to be you know 
let's call it what it is. I mean, brome, you hate to walk into a brome field because more times than not, it's not going to hold birds. And you're pretty much guaranteed when you're walking into crap, it's going to be some good grasses and things like that. Yeah, and there's, and there's like we said, we talked about the 40-acre minimum requirement. So there are smaller pieces of right. crap, too, that, that are, you know, better for a guy and a dog or a guy and a couple people and a couple dogs uh, that you don't, you don't have to be intimidated by the right. size of it. Right. Uh, but there are obviously some complexes where we've got multiple different landowners who have all enrolled in crap, and, and, and we got some pretty big places. I think in some areas you could probably walk for five miles and never step off a piece of crap. Right. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's some good variety on the landscape of opportunities offered by crap. And, and you mentioned about the scouting side of it. Uh, in, in some parts of that watershed, you almost got to spend a day driving around looking at all these different pieces of crap. And in a lot of the landscapes, is there, there's some good numbers of game production areas, waterfowl production areas, walking areas, all in, in, in that neighborhood. And it, it can take a little time to figure out which, which piece is the right piece for you and right. your, your setup uh, to go hunt. Yeah. Uh, but uh, like you said, the full array of opportunities there, and it is a, a phenomenal opportunity. Now, yeah. I'm going to give away one of my secrets, but I tend to look for those those little 40s and those smaller ones um, because they get overlooked a lot. Um, and that's I try to key in on some of those small areas. They, like, like we've been saying, they're easy to tackle, but a lot of times they get overlooked. People gravitate to those big complexes um, and forget about those 40s and 80s that are out there. And that's what I go look for. Hopefully I didn't give away my secret and also them have competition, but... <laughs> Um, I like that's what I like to do is find those little 40s and go on them. Now, here's another question for you guys. I'm going to circle up on something you said earlier, Mark. Community involvement. I've I've heard about the Aberdeen Pheasant Coalition. I believe is that is that dollars that feeds in the crap. I mean, how does that all work when it comes to communities wanting to make their communities prime pheasant hunting areas and how that looks like on the landscape? Sure. The the community access stuff kind of started after. Crep was like, oh, we can't take anymore. We got to 80,000 acres. Mm-hmm. And, you know, communities like Aberdeen were like, whoa, Crep is awesome. It's bringing all these hunters to Brown County. It, it's definitely impacting our local economy here. What can we do to, to get more of this type of public access in our, in our part of the state? And, uh, and so then that came about these community-based habitat and access program where uh, local businesses started pooling their funds together, and then offering an incentive to landowners to put their land in our walk-in area program, which obviously it's hunting only, uh, and it can be on pieces of CRP as well. Uh, but it was a way to, to incentivize more, getting more CRP since CREP couldn't do it anymore right. into yep. the walk-in area program, create more public access in their, in their general areas to try to draw more hunters and improve their local economies. Yeah, yeah, it was a direct direct result of you know running out of money for crap and these communities saying, well, we don't want it to stop, so this is what we're going to do. Um, and now we're going to see a shift a little bit in that you know we're still going to have these you know this, these act community based programs are going to still go on. Um, I I can see a lot of stuff happening is outside that James River watershed because there's a lot of communities that from PF standpoint we're hearing from that want to have a crap in their area. I mean, this is a way to do it um, until we can change those watersheds a little bit. Put a little bit of a plug in there to look bigger. But, <laughs> right. um, 
it, it's a direct result of, of what went on with CREP in these communities like Aberdeen, seeing that direct benefit from CREP coming in and saying, we don't want to stop. Um, and there's a way to do it um, on another scale. It's been hugely successful. Yep. That's that. I mean, it's, it's cool to see everybody, what, what happens, what the outcome is when GFP wins, Pheasants Forever wins, landowners win, hunters win, communities wins. I mean, right. I think that's, that's my takeaway from this conversation is there's no losers. There's no losers here. We're all, we're all winners. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, that's a good point, Nick, and I'd even echo that just the proof is in the pudding. You know, the fact that, you know, obviously the landowners like it because it's, it, it's keeping up with the rental rates. It's, it's um, you know, giving back to these watersheds, but it's, it's making financial sense for their operations, taking these marginal lands, um, putting them into, um, you know, habitat. And I know the hunters like them. Uh, I was up there. I spent five days in Brown and Spink County doing it, and and it was some of the best public land pheasant hunting I've had in a long time. And it, and that's including me tromping around out in the grasslands or walking the Missouri River breaks. It's it's uh, pretty phenomenal stuff. So thanks, boys, for both working on it. I'm gonna get ready to wrap up. What did I miss? What did Nick and I miss? Anything else we need to plug? I can't think of anything other than let's let's find another watershed and more money. There you go. February first, twenty twenty one. It is a holiday. Nick and Chris right. covered everything they needed <laughs> to. <laughs> I, I can get Norton. I can get Norton to be quiet every once in a while, but it's very rare where where there's uh, dead air when you're talking to Matt Morlock. So. Yeah, and I like to fill that up. <laughs> right on. Well, thanks, boys. We appreciate uh, your time, and uh, this is good stuff. If somebody, if you got a landowner out there who's looking, you know, like in that area and goes, hey, you know, that sounds like something I should look into. Where do they go? Yeah, I'd say uh, Habitat Pays, the Habitat Pays website um, is a great resource to go to. And on there, there's a link to Habitat Advisors, which is the PF Farm Bill biologists and the other NGOs that have some staff out there um, that are really, you know, really looking to to make sure that this works well for their operations. It might be CREP, it might be CRP, it might be something totally different. It might be a Game and Fish and Parks program. But I would send those landowners to that Habitat Pays website, get in contact with their nearest individual, um, the nearest Habitat advisor, um, and really just sit down and have that conversation and start looking at what's out there for options and, and get rolling on it. Yeah, and the other place that uh, if you're a hunter and you got a landowner buddy and He's been talking about, yeah, I need to put that area into CRP one of these days. And they, they happen to be in that James River watershed. Uh, definitely say, you know what, this is the time to make the call uh, and learn a little bit more about that CREP program. It sounds pretty phenomenal, and I, and I think it'll work great for you as a landowner as well. And, and um, the Habitat Advisors is definitely a great place to go. If they're uh, not comfortable with that, they probably have a relationship with their local farm service agency office. Feel free to send them there too, and they'd be happy to to get you started. And and if you if you need uh, if you have other questions that are other than CREP or other than CRP, they will they have great relationships with those farm bill biologists as well, and they will for surely put you in contact with the person that will help you out. Cool. Well, Nick and I have just been writing your guys' phone numbers in bathroom walls all over the state, so. I guess uh, your way is probably a little more efficient and targeted. So. Hey, I was just keeping it in the James River Valley. I mean, once we got out West River, it really didn't matter. Well, that, so explain, that explains some of these odd phone calls I've been getting. Right, right. I just use Hole's number once I get West yeah. of the river. Yeah, that's <laughs> <good for> that. <laughs> 
Well, boys, Matt Morlock with Business Forever, uh, Mark Norton, our habitat and access guru with Game Fishing Parts. Uh, thanks for your time. Nick, thanks for being here. You always got yeah. good questions. And, and uh, if you want something new from the South Dakota Podcast and Blast, you know how to get a hold of me. It's chris.hull at state.sd.us. Keep those suggestions coming and keep your rotten comments to yourself. But uh, I get a few of those from time to time, but usually they're from my buddies who are giving me some grief. So thanks, guys. Uh, we appreciate it, and we'll see you down the line. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. something that's really interesting we're talking about in our meeting today and it's the second annual snapshot competition for game fishing parks uh with the improvements in cameras in batteries and just the proclivity of all our outdoor folks always having a camera with them whether it's a camera phone and i see ally cringe even when i say that but uh good good cameras um you know seems like everybody's got um, video cameras and cameras with them pretty much all the time when they're out in the field or at least in their truck and waiting to take awesome shots. Uh, we've got a couple of our employees who came up with an awesome idea last year. Uh, first of all, we've got Allie Ellingson. It was Allie... Hey. I couldn't even remember your last <laughs> your, your maiden name, Allie Haith, who is our main graphic designer, and Nick Harrington, who you uh, have all heard and known and loved with Game Fishing Parks, and they came up with Snapshot last year. Um, let's just run through the program from last year, and, and well, first let's run through what it is. Uh, Snapshot South Dakota, go for it. Take it away. Yep, so that Snapshot South Dakota is something we really wanted to do to, to showcase the beauty our state has to offer. I mean, we have, whether you're talking out west at the Black Hills, whether you're even talking in the northeast where Chris is from, there's, there's beauty everywhere here, and at all times of the year, really. So last year we had our first ever Snapshot South Dakota. It was a chance for, for all our photographers out there to take their pictures, showcase them to us, and then we'd get them on display for the whole state and really the country for everyone to see and just see what our state has to offer. And it was an excellent turnout. We weren't sure to what, what to expect, and we had over 500 photos submitted in only like six weeks. So we're, we're pretty excited to bring it back on a larger scale this year. We're going to do... Three periods, so we're going to do a winter, a spring, and a summer. We're going to have four winners from each, and that's going to culminate to a grand prize winner at the South Dakota State Fair that we'll be announcing. So you can come see Chris and myself out at the fair. We're going to be we're going to be talking about all the winners, and if we haven't driven you away from our booth yet, well, this won't be the year to do it. <laughs> so, so we're we're pretty excited for what this has to offer. Right now, we're just opening up the winter period. Our, our categories are going to be winter landscapes, ice fishing, and snowmobiling. I know that's something we all, all love to do, whether, regardless how you like to get outside. That'll be something for you. So we're excited to see what these photos can get. We, we really are, and we appreciate everybody making this such a success that it was. Allie, let's talk about last year a little bit. Um, 500 photos. You and Nick went through them. It took a little bit longer than what you guys thought, and there was a lot of muttering under your breath when you were going through them, and 
tons of good photos. Ultimately, what did we do with a bunch of those photos? What were we doing with them? So a lot of them, we posted them in the Conservation Digest and also online. Um, we've used them on social media channels, Instagram, more than anything probably. Um, and we've also used them in a few of our publications. And of course, um, the ones that we do use, we do give credit to the photographer. So yeah, they've come in handy. They're beautiful photos and right. we really needed them. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is the calendar, right? Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yep. The yeah. Digest calendar this year was all snapshot photos. And, yeah. yeah, it was nice to get photos from all different regions of the state. And, yeah. Yeah, we were we were really impressed with the quality of the photos and the diversity of the photos because uh, I'm one of the guys that I prefer to not bring my, photo out, my camera out in the field because that way I can only talk about how big a deer I killed and, <laughs> and how big a fish I caught and then not have any proof for someone to, right. someone to call me a liar. But, I mean, we, we were very, very impressed. I know Allie was probably a little concerned there was going to be a lot of me's out there in the world, but we have, we have a lot of good photographers here in the state, and they, and they really showed up for us. Yeah, uh, for those of you who don't know, and if you don't have it, or South Dakota uh, Conservation Digest, it's like three bucks a year, comes with every year a calendar of photos. Um, you know, it's always been, you know, a lot of nature photos, a lot of hunting photos, a lot of fishing photos, uh, a lot of parks photos, but this was a way that these two came up with, with just like, let's step outside that a little bit and let some of the talent show through, but let somebody's eye come through too. I mean, Allie and I could be standing there next to the same scene and take 50 photos. Uh, I might get one good one, um, she would have 48 of them, and they would be at a totally different perspective. So I think the eye is the thing that's like the most interesting to me, or you know, the ideas of them, but also just kind of the perspective of it too. So um, really cool idea. Um, and, and like I said, last year we had, I think we had all 500 up at our booth at the fair too, and, yep. and that was super popular. Um, so so uh, these guys were talking, and we, we decided... You know, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll probably pick a bunch of finalists, and, and if they can make it to the fair, uh, awesome. And then we'll reveal, you know, the winners there, and, and, and we're going to have some sort of prizes for them and, and uh, recognition for sure. And and, uh, and like Allie said, you know, we're always looking for good photos. Um, we don't always get the time to go out and capture some of that stuff, and, and if we do happen to use them, we credit them. And most people get a pretty, pretty good kick out of that. Yep, mm -hmm. definitely. So what kind of changes other than, um, you know, the, the categories, what other stuff, what other kind of changes um, have you guys come up with for this year? So probably one of the biggest changes that the photographers are going to see, last year we were taking five photos. This year, with the multiple periods that we're going to be having, we're only going to be accepting three photos per period. So, for example, I can submit my snowmobile, my ice fishing, and my winter landscape this, this winter. And then in spring, once we reveal those categories, I can submit three there. They're all separate competitions. So, I mean, in theory, if I'm a really good photographer, which I can say this because I know I'm not even going to get anywhere near this, but if someone was a really good photographer, they could have entries. They could possibly win all three periods and then have three entries of that grand prize that we're going to be showing off at the state fair. And that's... We had, like I said, we had great success last year, but we're really excited this year to be able to really showcase those photos at our booth at the state fair. We hope to see you guys out there again, and then really make a big, a big ordeal out of it this year. Last year was tough with with everything going on in the world, but 
I think we're going to be really able to showcase those photos and photographers this year coming up. And that's what I'm most excited for. Cool. Allie, um, so I've got a good photo. Oh, hold on, Nick. I want to... So in that period, yep. so it's uh, the winter is snowmobiling and ice fishing and winter landscapes. Yep. Can I submit three snowmobiling photos? You sure can. Okay. I mean, you sure can. They can all be in one. Mine are going to be all ice fishing, so right. I mean, it's going to be just fine. Right. <laughs> um, Allie, anyone eligible for this? Yep, yep. Anybody, all ages. You could be five with your phone or older with... A disposable camera. I, I, didn't, I did not have a phone when I was five, but maybe well, Allie did. You know, your parents or whatever. But, but also residents, non-residents, anybody. Yep, yep. Cool. And um, how, how do you, Allie, how do you submit a photo? So say we got a couple, I've got a couple of really good photos on my computer. Where do I go to submit them? There will be a link on our GFP website, too. Um, if you search... Yep. It, search snapshot south dakota search and it'll, it'll come up yep yeah cool yep and look you know look for it on our social media too i think yep. um, we'll have link, we'll have links out there you'll 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 have a hard time not finding it let's put it that way right cool um let's let's talk about i'm going to get in the weeds a little bit and i think both of you are probably going to roll your eyes at me but one of the when you guys were talking about this and in you know this this in one form or another has always kind of been bantered back and forth or battered back and forth in the department, whether it's a habitat stamp art contest or a coloring contest, which we've done and, and a snapshot of, you know, why other than, you know, getting photos and getting other people's recognition, you know, why do it? Who are we, who are we aiming to reach? Who are we, what are we aiming to accomplish other than, you know, building a photo library and helping Allie build a calendar <laughs> and, and pick photos for the digest? You know, GFP deals a lot with the hunters and landowners and and everything too, but you can't forget about the kayakers, the park goers, things like that. And this contest is a way to also reach them, along with the hunters and fishermen and women and everything else too. Um, it's just a good way to reach that audience that we don't maybe get to interact with as much as we would hope or want to. Yep. And, and I mean, that's that's the big thing is when we sit down and talk about these categories, we really want to showcase everything our state has to offer, which is why you see, for example, this winter, you see winter landscapes, you see ice fishing, and you see snowmobiling. I mean, that's everything across our state, whether you're ice fishing in the northeast, whether you're snowmobiling out west, or whether you just see a gorgeous shot here along the Missouri River and pier where we are, or even down south, Yankton, Lewis and Clark, down, down in that stretch. So... We, we really try to make sure that everybody can find at least one category that, that they can see themselves submitting and spending their time doing. Cool. Uh, yeah, we've got, I think we've got a lot of work ahead of us at the fair and, and everything, but let's talk about the, the judging process. I mentioned before that you two were pouring over 500 photos, and, and um, it was probably a lot more work than, than what we were anticipating and stuff, but just talk about that selection process, uh, who's doing it, what you're looking for, that kind of thing. So I, I think the big thing that I have to say first is Allie is a saint for putting up with me with it because <laughs> I was responsible for like 99% of the muttering Chris referenced. <laughs> and that really goes back to we, we were so surprised with how many photos we got. I mean, we really were. We, Our thoughts, again, going into it, we weren't sure to what to expect. We were expecting maybe 100 or so photos and 
most of them weren't going to be very good, and we were we were dead wrong was was the issue. So when we sat down, we went through and we categorized each photo, and we said, okay, this will be the this will be the landscape. This will be I think we were doing uh, water recreation at the time, so we were kind of differentiating those. And then as we did them, we were, we were putting them in their respective folders so that we could have a, a better look at them and then really pulling out the ones that really jumped out at us in that, in that first, first stretch. And that, you, that got us down to, what was it, Allie, probably 10 yep. that, that we really narrowed it down from, from there. And we, and we shared them with folks here in the department. Mm-hmm. We, we got some different perspectives from us because God knows I was sick of looking at them at the same time too. And so that led us to really be able to, to pick out which those winners were. And the, the fun thing about it was the people's choice voting, it, it took care of itself. I think the winning photo had 486 likes on Facebook. I mean, that that's a lot of eyes on that photo alone to get that many people to vote on it. And that, right. was, that was one of the most fun parts of the contest as well, was seeing all those people interact, seeing all those people really enjoy the photos. That was the main comment we got was, as they voted, they really enjoyed just seeing all the photos people had. And there were a lot of people that I believe liked just every single photo in the album. Right. So that's one strategy I guess I guess you could go for with your votes. I don't, I don't know how American Idol or anything <laughs> works, but we don't, we don't make you narrow it down to one. So, so yeah, let's, let's talk about, um, so there's three category winners, but you brought up the People's Choice thing. Allie, how does, how does that work? And, and you know, that's going to be a separate, that'll be our fourth winner, but... Go ahead and talk about that. So People's Choice, we take all the photos that were submitted and we upload them to Facebook in an album. Um, and I believe we leave it up for a week. Yep. And no, then, yeah, and then, you know, the photographers can search through, find their photo, share it with their audience and get everybody to like and vote for it. So each like is a vote for that photo. And at the end of the week, whichever photo has the most amount of likes gets awarded People's Choice, so. Cool, very cool. Uh, and, and I was shocked, you know, even with, with the fair being, you know, less and, you know, less attendance and, and social distancing and everything, you know, how many, because we announced that we were going to have these photos up and, and uh, the number of photographers that showed up mm-hmm. in here on, you know, during Labor Day weekend and we're looking and, oh yeah, there's our photos and mm-hmm. definitely came up and told us the story behind the photo and, and uh, had in-depth conversations about, you know, this contest and shooting photos and, and whether it was their kids sitting on the dock at sundown or a nasty old snapping turtle or something. Um, you know, they were sharing those stories. And, and really, you know, that like Allie said, that it was a way for us to talk to people who might not ever come up and talk to us because they don't have an issue with, you know, hunting or fishing or, or a, you know, there was too many mosquitoes at Oahe downstream or something. You know, these people were coming up. Um, and it was directly due to this competition. So, um, you know, and I, and I think, and I'll throw this question out to you guys, a, a big big chunk of the winners or the people who even ended up in, in the digest, they aren't the Chad Coppas professional photographers of the world either, were they? No, I don't believe so. They, they definitely had talent, and I think everybody did that submitted. But yeah, just your average Joe's out there with the camera. Right, definitely. right place, right time. And yep. For what it's worth, I didn't submit, so she can say that everybody <laughs> had talent that submitted. <laughs> um, just, just to make sure that's clear for everyone out there. But yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, it was really just looking at those photos. You could tell it was what people caught 
in that moment being outdoors. And that was what made this contest so fun, too, was it was generic. It was families outdoors, and it was just that picture that, I mean, you, you all know what it is. Chris, I know I know you, you know it well when you're just sitting there like, holy smokes, I want to just freeze time for a second. Yeah. I've, heard, I've heard you reference that before. How do I just freeze time? And that's what these photos were. And, I mean, that's... That's wholesome family fun getting outdoors and again a lot of people a lot of people retreated outdoors last year and I hope they continue to do it because it's it's good for you it really is yeah that's well put um, are we taking say I took a picture two years ago are we eligible for that you know I've got a picture of my daughter when she was little taking you know holding a bluegill or do we want new pictures we're encouraging new pictures. Yep, definitely encouraging new pictures, but really anything's open. Um, we just love to see the photos. And a lot of times you can't even tell usually how old they are. I mean, of course, unless they're 20 years old yeah. or something. But yeah, a picture from, from I, I, my, my youth. You'd be I, I don't know. It's pretty funny. Sometimes when Chris is pulling pictures, Charlie has teeth. Charlie <laughs> yeah, doesn't have exactly. teeth. <laughs> yeah, we still use some of those pictures when she was little. <laughs> Like, wow, it's like she lost them and then found them again. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're encouraging new photos, but if you've got some old photos that, that you think uh, you want to share with us and, and potentially share with, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people between all our social media and all the other things that we do, we're encouraging that too. So it's uh, go to gfp.sd.gov and search snapshot. Um, We'll be, we'll be sharing it, this a lot on our uh, social media stuff, too, so look for it there at Snapshot. Um, it's a cool thing. It, it really is a cool outreach tool, um, and I commend both of you for, for setting it up well. Like I said, we've done some of this stuff in the past with mixed results, and I think this is definitely one of those ones that, that uh, is off to a really, really good start, and we encourage all of you out there uh, start going through your photos. Um, you can even scroll through your phone if you, but it's got to be a really good one if it's on your phone. So. Allie makes fun of me for that, right. so I just want to point that out there. Right. But we're encouraging those too. We had some good ones, you know, people uh, eyeing it up with a good camera phone, and, and sometimes that's all you got, and it captures a great memory and a great image. But I commend you two for doing that, and it's awesome. It's Snapshot South Dakota. Uh, it's on our website. It's on our Facebook page. Um, we're going to do press releases. We're going to be reaching out. If you have any questions, who are we going to? Yep. So any questions or comments on this contest too? Like like Chris said, this is this is still pretty new for us. We want we want your feedback to make this a contest that's great for all of you. You can send them direct to me, Nick Harrington at state.sd.us. So Nick Harrington H A R R I N G T O N at state.sdus. Send me your questions, send me your comments. I, I, I'd love to hear from you and find out how we can make this better and make sure that we're, we're really pleasing everyone out there. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your time. And as always, thanks for listening.